All right, let's get our Bibles out. We are studying the life of David by looking at the book of 1 Samuel. Our text this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 23. We're looking at verses 14 through 29. The topic we're going to find there is this. With King Saul pursuing, David chooses to flee into the wilderness of Ziph. The title of our message, Choosing Monarchs Choose Ziph. Well, they do. So let's pray about that. Father, we do uh, seek you in prayer. We thank you for your word. We look at the life of David, Lord, and we see the man after your own heart. We see him in this time of uh, wandering, Lord, this time of exile, this time of suffering. We want to see, Lord, what that means to us, how we can glean from it really precious spiritual insight for the life that you've called us to live, for the things that are ahead of us as we seek to serve you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning or more than one, Lord, that doesn't know you, they haven't yet come to the cross and realized that they are sinners in need of a Savior. They haven't understood that you died to take their sin upon you and give them your righteousness. I pray that they would have that understanding today, that they would come to you by faith in Jesus Christ and have their sins forgiven and be saved, that they'd be filled with the Holy Spirit and on their way to eternity. Lord, would you do that work, we pray, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Now, this is one of those times when the Lord made the lesson He was teaching David Pretty obvious. David was in the wilderness of Ziph. Your Strong's Concordance will tell you that the word Ziph means to liquefy or to soften as asphalt in the hot sun. Commenting on the region, A.W. Pink writes, and I quote, Possibly the mountain there was rich in minerals, and at Ziph there was a smelter and a refinery. I don't see how David could miss the lesson. He was the precious commodity. His circumstances were God's smelter. God was turning up the heat, as it were, in order to spiritually refine his future king. God's refining of his people is a familiar theme in the Bible. The Apostle Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7, when he said, In this greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Job, in all of his suffering, came to understand what God had been doing in his life. He said, and this is in Job 23, verse 10, But God knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. It can take us a while to realize the situation we are in is God's smelter and that we are being refined. But when we do, we understand that these refining moments present unique opportunities. We're going to take a look at David's refining in order to learn something about our own. 
I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, refining moments are opportunities to encourage your stronghold on God. And number two, refining moments are opportunities to experience God's stronghold on you. Let's take a look, first of all, in verses 14 through 18 to encourage your stronghold on God. Is it true that a metalsmith knows when the ore is refined because he can see his reflection in it? I wondered that because uh, over the years I found that so many of the really good Bible illustrations turn out not to be true. They're made up. If something sounds too good to be true, sometimes it is. Well, I did some research on this and I found the following on the website of a silversmith. Turns out this is true. He says, in refining silver, one needs to hold the silver in the middle of the fire where the flames are hottest, so as to burn away all the impurities. You must keep your eyes on the silver the entire time it is in the fire. If the silver is left even a moment too long in the flames, it will be destroyed. The silver is fully refined when the smith can see his image reflected in it. And so David's situation is the smelter. God has his eyes on him the whole time. He's looking to see his image revealed in David's life. Verses 14 through 18, the emphasis is on the ministry of Jonathan to David. David was in a refining moment and Jonathan took the opportunity to encourage his friend. Before we look at ourselves in the smelter, we're thus encouraged to see others in the smelter and to strengthen them. You know, when we come to these passages on uh, trials and all, uh, I like you, or maybe you're not like me, but I, I want to get right into what this means to me because of the trial I'm in or was in or am going to be in. And so this is interesting because God says, hey, before you think about yourself, before you identify with David... Why don't you identify with Jonathan and why don't you think about others that are in trial, that others that are in suffering? And then you think, of course, Lord, because that's so often how I find my joy when I am serving others and seeing what they're going through and helping them. I don't have time to be worried about what I'm going through. And so at any rate, we take a look at Jonathan as the one who's going to encourage David to keep his hold on God strong. And so in verse 14, and David stayed in strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. So David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life and David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. Every day without any rest, David's enemy relentlessly pursued him, putting his life in danger, putting his future on hold. That either describes you or it describes someone you know. If you aren't currently in the smelter, some Christian you know is. And so we can all relate to this. Verse 16, then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. Let's say a word about this phrase, strengthened his hand in God. I was just thinking about that. And uh, I guess because of maybe where I'm at in my life right now, I can't help but think of a little child holding on to his or her uh, parents' hands. Uh, in my case, uh, it's, you know, my granddaughter holding on to my hand. Now, kids, I found this is something I forget. It's amazing how many things you forget uh, between the time you're a parent and the time you're a grandparent. 
Uh, some things you want to forget. Uh, but uh, other things, you know, you just forget. So, oh, yeah, that's right. So CJ, when we take her to the store... Uh, for whatever reason, she, you know, she wants to be a little bit independent. She doesn't want to hold your hand, uh, you know, and, and so you're, you're there in the parking lot and uh, these people are, you know, how people are in parking lots, you know, they're all mad at each other and looking for people to run over uh, and stuff. And so, you, you know, you got to make sure you got to get from the car to the store safely and stuff. And, and then there's a whole nother problem in the store, but it, the parking lot's enough of a problem right now. And so, so she doesn't really want to hold my hand. Uh, because she wants to be a little independent, but I, she understands now that we're not moving until she holds something, and so so she holds my finger, uh, and and I know that I can you know grab her with ninja quickness if I have to and stuff, so it all works out. Uh, so she's only wanting to have this light hold on me, but it's interesting whenever something scary happens, then kids want to not just hold your finger or your hand, they put some kind of a death grip on you. You know, it's like, ah, oh, you know, and they're choking you to this. I would really be able to help you if you weren't choking me to death right now. And so it's, it's a very interesting analogy when we talk about God's stronghold on you or your stronghold upon God. Someone who might be hanging on to God lightly by a finger, as it were, may suddenly find themselves in the scary smelter. They need to be encouraged to strengthen that hold upon God. That's what Jonathan did for David. And so let's discuss a few of the characteristics we we see in him. Saul and his 3,000 trained men could not find David. Jonathan knew exactly where David was. Now, that... You know, how that is, we, it doesn't matter. What it says to us is that God is able to show you people that He wants you to encourage. Sometimes it's all too obvious because someone you know is diagnosed with a condition or they suffer a major setback or they're living through some obvious difficulty. Sometimes it's more subtle as a person is walking around not in an obvious smelter, but they're sad or they're grieved. Either way, the Holy Spirit can put them on your heart. Uh, And it doesn't always mean that you have to go to them or especially if there's nothing obvious to try and draw something out of them. Maybe, maybe not. But, uh, you know, you can pray for them. You've ever just thought about a person? Uh, I'm blessed because every now and then people will call and say, hey, you were on my heart today. And, And I love that. Uh, because I, I usually need to be on people's hearts that day. You know, I say, yeah, I, and I know why, uh, you know, and, and stuff. And so if God brings somebody to your heart, whether it's because you hear that something is actually going on in their life, but especially if you're just thinking about them, pray for that person. Pray about whether you should contact that person, but at least pray for them and seek the Lord on their behalf and know that the Lord, if we're sensitive, will show us who He wants us to encourage and how He wants us to do that. Verse 17, And He said to him, Don't fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. Now, Jonathan's statement is based on the revealed word and will of God. The prophet Samuel had anointed David to be the next king of Israel. Nothing could keep David from ultimately wearing the crown. One day you and I will wear crowns. It's not just another way of saying we'll receive rewards in heaven. The Bible says we're literally going to be given crowns. Uh, And it describes them like these victory wreaths that they would get at the end of the Olympic Games, these laurel wreath kinds of things. 
they're going to be among the possible rewards that Jesus will give out at his reward seat. And, and that's where we're headed. If you're a Christian, you're going to get there. Now, the Bible says when you stand before the Lord, some of us are going to be saved barely by fire. And that means all of our works are going to burn up. We're, we're going to be looking for a crown and it's not going to be there because we wasted our time. But we'll still be in heaven. But the majority of us, we're doing you know, what the Lord wants us to do. We're seeking the Lord. We're sharing the gospel. And the Lord's going to reward us in that day. It's incumbent on us to direct Christians in the smelter to remember that they are being refined. They're being conformed into the image of Jesus. God has begun a good work in them. He is pursuing its completion. And the fire that they're in is part of that process. Now, on the surface, it sounds like Jonathan included some misinformation. He said, and I shall be next to you. Did he mean that he would be David's right-hand man? Did he assume that David would rule and that he would help him? Well, in fact, this is the last time Jonathan and David would ever meet. Jonathan's going to die in battle with his father. The word next can be used to denote subordination. And so it could be that Jonathan was saying, I'll be your second in command, but it's more likely that he was simply saying that he was subordinate to David. In other words, he was saying that even though I am next in line to be king after Saul, I've long ago submitted to God's plan, David, that you are going to be the next king. I understand what God is doing. I hold no aspirations to be king based on heredity because I know what God is doing. Jonathan was in a place in his own life where he was living out the very things that he was encouraging David to do and to be. He wasn't simply throwing Bible verses at his friend. He was walking in them, in their power, in their humility. The best way to be a Jonathan, in fact, the only real way, is to daily humble yourself before God. God doesn't send you to encourage someone because you're so strong. No, He sends you because you realize in your weakness He is made strong. He sends you when Christ in you is your only hope of glory. Verse 18, So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed in the woods, and Jonathan went to his own house. Jonathan definitely encouraged David. Still, he went home. David remained in the wilderness, we're saying in the smelter. It's important to be a Jonathan. I think you get that. That's the first lesson. Find somebody who's Jonathan you can be. But in the end, as we start to look at our own lives now, all that a Jonathan can do is direct you to God. Don't let go of your stronghold on God if and when no Jonathan comes to you. The longer you walk with the Lord, you are going to find situations where you would love to have a Jonathan or two or three or four or a dozen. And sooner or later, you're not going to have a single person to encourage you. How do I know this? Because Paul the Apostle said something similar. After his first imprisonment, he said, uh, and he he went to court, he said, at my first uh, hearing... No one stood with me. No one. He was there all by himself. This is Paul the Apostle. He risked his life multiple times. Every day he's risking his life to establish churches, to encourage the believers. Uh, And he said, and then when I had to go to court, there was no one 
who stood with me. He said, except one. Who is that? Jesus Christ. And Paul said, so, you know, he wasn't sour grapes. He wasn't crying. He wasn't upset. He said, listen, sometimes there's going to be a time in your life when there is no one. But Jesus is enough. And so uh, this knocks us down sometimes because we think, okay, Lord, great trial. Lord, I love this trial. You're really teaching me this trial. I'm, I'm gonna, just going to wait for Jonathan to knock on the door. I know you've, you sent me a Jonathan, or if you're a girl, Jonathanette. Uh, maybe Joanne, I don't know. What's the female of Jonathan? Don't shout it out. I'll find out later. And, and, and so you wait, and all day there's no Jonathan, no Johnette. Next day, next day, months, weeks, years, who knows? No one ever comes. What happens? Well, you can grow bitter. You can get resentful because you, you want that kind. And it's great. Well, maybe there is a Jonathan. They're disobeying the Lord. That's not your problem. You still need to have a strong hold on God and realize that he has a strong hold on you. And so as we move into verse 19, refining moments are opportunities to experience God's stronghold on you. Jonathan's visit, undoubtedly a great blessing to David, but after he was gone, the situation intensified. It got worse instead of better. God turned up the heat to remove a few more impurities. <coughs> Excuse me. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah saying, Is David not hiding with us in strongholds in the woods, in the hills of Hakila, which is on the south of Jeshimon? Now therefore, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to come down and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hand. Their motive for ratting out David may have been fear. After all, look what Saul had done in Nob, ordering the death of all the priests and their families and even their livestock because he accused them of helping David. Or the Ziphites may simply have seen turning over David as a way of gaining some favor with Saul, who after all was the king. For whatever reason, the Ziphites did not like having David around. You've experienced this undoubtedly. Sooner or later, certain people don't want the Christian hanging around. Your life just becomes too convicting for them. You find yourself at odds with them, even though you've done them no harm. In fact, you're trying to do them good by sharing the gospel. But they don't see it that way. They'd rather stay in the status quo. If you were saved later in life, you can identify with this. You probably undoubtedly knew some Christians. And, and even though, you, you know, their lives, you know, they were normal. They weren't doing anything weird to you. They weren't putting any stresses on you. There was just something about them you didn't like. You didn't want to be around them. We call it conviction once you come into the knowledge of Jesus Christ. All you have to do maybe is go to work and say, hey, what'd you do this weekend? Oh, I went to family camp. What's that all about? Oh, it's a super time when, uh, you know, because I love my wife and I love my children. We all hang out together. We all have fun. We sing Kumbaya and we swim and we have canoe races. And I mean, we have this wonderful, it's just fantastic. And all of that is true. And all the while your colleague is thinking, my wife hates me. I hate her. My kids are out of control. I can't give them enough, you know, prescription medicine even to keep them under control. I mean, what's going on here? And if they're not ready, if they're not to a point to say, what can I do to, to really be more like you? Then it's like, hey, you're telling me I'm a bad parent. I'm a bad person. Watch what I'm going to do to you. 
I'm going to find out. I'm going to follow you around. I'm going to listen in on your conversations. I'm going to turn you in. You're uh, evangelizing on business time. You're, uh, you know, I saw you took a paperclip home. Thief. Uh, there's something I have to find. You're, you know, the, in the Old Testament, they looked at Daniel. People were always trying to find some way to accuse Daniel and they could never find it. And they finally made up religious reasons to accuse him. And so this is what happens. People don't like Christians being around. And really all you're trying to do is say, I was blind once like you, but now I can see. God opened my eyes to the fact that I was a sinner. That I, if I died, was going to perish eternally. Because there's nothing I can do to save myself. There's no work of righteousness that I can do to become perfect before God. I was lost. And just at that moment... I saw Jesus on the cross saying, I will give you my righteousness. I will take your sin if you'll but believe in me. And I did. And I was saved and cleansed and born again. And that's when I started loving my wife and raising my children as unto the Lord. And that's when my life turned around. And no, it's not perfect. I have plenty of problems and sin still in my life. But I'm on my way with the Lord, looking forward to that day that he completes that good work that he's begun in me. What a joy it is to be a Christian. Verse 21, and Saul said, blessed are you of the Lord, for you have compassion on me. Please go and find out for sure and see the place where his hideout is and who has seen him there. For I am told he's crafty. See, therefore, and take knowledge of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with certainty and I will go with you. And it shall be if he is in the land that I will search for him throughout all the clans of Judah. Saul is in no place to give a blessing from God. And the Ziphites are in no place to receive one. This is all evil, fleshly stuff. When people turn on you for no reason that you've given them, they can always find a way to justify their behavior and make it sound like they're doing the right thing. Now, in the book of Philippians, in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, we read this. Paul says, do all things without complaining and disputing, being blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked generation among whom you shine as lights. That's our part. And by our part, I mean that's what the Holy Spirit wants to produce through us as we yield ourselves to the Spirit and not to the flesh. And if we are walking like that and people turn on us, then we can be sure we are in God's smelter. We want to be sure that, you know, we're not just being bozos and bringing stuff on ourselves, but we're, hey, I'm trying to walk with the Lord. I'm not complaining. I'm not disputing. I'm blameless. I'm harmless. Uh, I'm walking in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation the best way I know how in the power of the Holy Spirit. But people are turning on me. The situation is against me. I am in God's smelter. Count it all joy. Verse 24, so they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. But David and his men uh, were in the wilderness of Maon in the plain on the south of Jeshimon. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David. Therefore, he went down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. Then Saul went on one side of the mountain, David and his men on the other side of the mountain. So David made haste to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were encircling David and his men getting ready to take them. <clears throat> now, we see here that David wasn't at Ziph when Saul arrived, but he was still in the vicinity. 
smelling blood, Saul saw him and began to encircle him. Remember, he has about 3,000 men, so he has quite a few resources. He was going for position so that there would be no escape for David. If you're a metalsmith, what good is a smelter if it has a leak in it? You, you don't want to lose any of the precious ore that you're smelting. The really good trials leave you no way of escape apart from the Lord's intervention. And so if you find yourself in a situation and you come to the conclusion that there's absolutely no natural way out because you've tried everything you know how and you just can't get out from under the trial, the Bible would say rejoice because you are in God's smelter for sure and it's a really good one. And it's going to have a great outcome. And so in verse 27, But a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. Therefore da- uh, excuse me, Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. So they called that place the Rock of Escape. Talk about waiting until the last possible moment. I mean, David is surrounded. And, and there's no way out. There's nothing he can do. And then God sends the Philistines against the Israelites and the messenger comes right at that moment and says, hey, Saul, you're going to have to break off this personal vendetta you have with David. There's something bigger brewing at home. God is a master storyteller. God knows drama. Just like that, the immediate danger was over. You are going to experience smelters that end suddenly. You're in a trial, it's heating up, and then it ends. But you might also experience ones that seem more like a slow burn. Maybe it's a chronic condition or a tragedy that is really going to affect you your entire life. Think of yourself as a particular kind of precious ore. When we're talking about the metalsmith, let's say working with silver or gold. Silver is, is far, I mean, maybe I'm being dumb because I, I didn't even take chemistry in school, but, uh, which I'm happy now because you don't even have to memorize the periodic chart. Do you realize that? Those of you who took chemistry and you memorized the periodic chart, <laughs> losers, uh, they don't make you do that anymore. What do you do in chemistry besides memorize the periodic chart and blow things up? I mean, you know, anyway, but... Um, So my analysis is that gold is gold and silver is silver. And if you're a metalsmith, here's the temperature and here's how I work with gold and here's how I skim off the impurities. And pretty much I'm going to do that with, you know, all gold and with all silver. Same temperature, same process. Now we apply that to the human life, to each of us, a little bit different. Because though we're all human and though we all go through the same kinds of things... Each of us is just different enough to where God says, I can't produce patience in you, Gene, with a quick trial, with a, with a high heat. It's going to have to be a long, slow burn in order to get the outcome. However, over here, here's what you need over here. And this, yeah, I can. I can just flash that. That's going to be a flash point, And I can do that. But it may be just the opposite with someone else. And this is why, again, it's so impossible to compare yourself to other Christians. I love to do that in the flesh. (laughs) Well, I do. You look at and you're going through something. You say, Lord, how come I have to go through this and this person doesn't have to? Or when they went through it, you delivered them in two days. It's already been two weeks for me. 
What are you doing? I'm, don't you love me? You know, and, so, and God is saying to me, he says, well, you're a particular kind of ore. I, I can't do that in you. You're not getting it. You won't come. I can't see myself in you after two days. But after two weeks or two years or two decades, yeah, Gene, then I'm going to be able to see this quality. And so you may need a series of quick burns at high temperature or you may need long, slow burns at a constant temperature in order for the Lord to finally see himself reflected in you. Now, back to David. What kind of reflection was God refining for in David? What did he hope to see? Well, for one thing, he was refining for compassion. In our last study, we saw David go to the aid of the city of Keilah when the Philistines were raiding them. He wasn't king yet. He had no obligation to go there, but he had compassion upon the plight of those oppressed people. For another thing, God was refining for mercy. The men of Keilah would have turned David over to Saul even after he had saved them. The Ziphites openly opposed David, but he took no revenge upon them. He didn't even take any spoil from them that we read of. Instead, he showed mercy upon them, the kind of mercy God shows upon men who are in rebellion against him. I'd encourage you to go back through these verses and discover other spiritual traits God was developing in David. In fact, that's a good assignment. Read through and say, now, what other... I see compassion, I see mercy. What else is being revealed in the life of David that is a characteristic of God? But looking at just those two, compassion and mercy, we see certain conditions must be present in order for God to see them in you in order for Him to perfect them in you. As to compassion, it seems that you must face a dilemma in which compassion is called for. The example I would give is the story of the Good Samaritan that we're all very familiar with. A man is beaten and robbed, left for dead on the road. Three men came upon him along that road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Only one of them showed compassion. In only that one of them can you see God reflected. But it required that situation. God says, I, I, I want to see compassion, so I need to give you a situation in which compassion is called for to see myself reflected there. As for mercy, it is most commonly defined as not getting what you deserve. You, you know, you deserve this. I'm going to show mercy on you and not give you what you deserve. Well, in order for you to show mercy, you need to be mistreated so that you can respond by not giving someone what they deserve. To me, I don't see any other way that you can show mercy. Uh, you can't just generally. Show, I'm just generally showing mercy. Look at me. I'm showing mercy on you. What does that mean? It means nothing. You have to offend me. You have to do something to me that requires, that normally would call for uh, retribution. And then I say, no, I'm going to show God's mercy. Just like these guys in the story. The Ziphites, come on. David hadn't done anything to them. And they say, well, we're going to turn him in. I can hear David's men. Hey, before we leave, can we kill these guys? How about we kill them? Or we maim them if we can't kill them. Or we do something bad to them. And what does David do? How about we show mercy to them? How about we do what God does towards us? And then God sees his reflection in David. 
Many of the traits that conform you to the image of Jesus can only be forged in these kinds of fires. Now, the thing that sticks out about David's time in the wilderness was that God never relinquished his strong hold on David. His hold was just as strong at Ziph as it was at Maon, as it was at Jeshimon. And neither will God relinquish his strong hold on you. You are either in God's smelter or you know someone who is or both of those things are true at once. And that's probably where you're at. You're in a smelter or you just got out of one or getting into another one tomorrow. And you know plenty of people who are going through trials. Take a strong hold on God and realize that he always has his strong hold on you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these things. We appreciate the life of David in and of itself for, uh, as a brother in the Lord to see what you did to refine him into the great king that he was, the man after your own heart. But more than that, Lord, we love to see the lessons uh, in the life of David with regard to uh, our own lives. And I pray this day, Lord, that we would understand that the trials that we're in or going to be in or that our friends and relatives and family are in, Lord, that they are a, a, a pot that you've put us in, Lord, so that you can skim off dross and impurities so that you can be reflected in our lives. And not just so that you can see yourself in us, but so that others can see you in us. So that others that don't know you would see the reflection of the glory of God through Jesus Christ. And that they would, if they're Christians, be drawn into a deeper walk. If they're not believers, that they would cry out to us, Lord, what must I do to be saved? I see something in you. I see someone in you. A hope of glory that I don't have. I don't want to risk another day that I might perish and not have eternal life. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do all that and more in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. Rhett and Kevin are here to pray with you this morning. And so if there's something on your heart or someone on your heart, uh, come forward. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've uh, never asked Him to save you, you've never been born again by His Holy Spirit, uh, they would love to lead you in a prayer of bringing you to Christ. Uh, otherwise, hang around campus for a little while, go into the cafe, say hi to somebody that you've never met before, uh, and then get ready uh, for God's reflection to be revealed in you in the unique way that He's chosen uh, to do that in each of our lives because He loves us so very, very much. God bless. Amen.